0: audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, there is a lost art. A lost art. Now, I don't know if you could call it an art or skill um, or tactic, whatever it might be, but I can tell you this. You don't see much of it anymore, and it's this. The art of navigation. The art of navigation and knowing how to do that when when donna we've been married this this fall will be 16 years and we we have always gone on trips always done that sort of thing her family vacation my family vacation so we vacation and we've we've done that for for many years but it it looks different than it used to when we we was just the two of us shortly after marriage this is what our trips would look like it would be me in the driver's seat because donna says i'm bossy when she drives I mean, she's probably right. So anyway, so it just works out better for us if if I'm driving, and she's in the passenger seat, and then she would have a book open in her lap, and it was not God's word most of the time, which that would be a good thing, that'd be a good thing, but um, she would have a book open that we call an atlas, and she would tell me where to go according to what that book said. Let me tell you something. The vast majority of the time, we ended up right where we were supposed to be. I mean, it was it was so easy. It was so, now we get caught in construction occasionally, but that's fine. That's what happens when you drive through Oklahoma. No, just kidding. And it, but I mean, but but you got to where you were going. Now. Atlases. I mean, you can ask a young person, what's an atlas? It's like, I don't know, is that a movie or something? I don't know. They just, I don't even know if they make those things anymore because everything is done on these phones and the map app. They even have a name. It rhymes. It's so annoying. And, and you've got this thing. So no longer is there an atlas. There is this phone. And it brings tension into the car along with it because this is what happens. I, guys, I'm a, I'm a Terminator fan. I like the Terminator, all 40 of the Terminator movies, okay? Uh, I liked them. And, and what I liked about them was this sort of the machines taking over, like AI is going to take over and it's going to ruin the whole world. Guys, those apps on your phone, those map apps, that's the first sign. That is the first sign of this happening. And this is what, like the phones inside your car are communicating and the phone that is being used, it says, watch this. This is gonna be funny, all right? So you know what I'm gonna tell You know what I'm gonna tell him? I'm gonna tell him that the fastest route to Dallas, Texas is this particular route and I'm gonna take him the whole way on oil field roads. This is gonna be great. This is gonna be absolutely great. I'm going to take this guy in his Prius on oilfield roads all the way to Dallas. Let me tell you something. I think I'm going to start including this in premarital counseling. Future husbands and wives go buy an atlas and use it. Your trips will be so much more wonderful if you will just do that. Because we all want to find the best way. I mean, there might be this way or that way or this way, this, this. We want the best, the best way. It's so interesting about that word in our New Testament. Three letter word, W A Y. um, Where it jumps the most out off the pages in our faces comes from the mouth of Jesus in the last night before his joke of a trial. And finding himself on the cross. Now he knew he was going there. So don't misunderstand me. But he's sitting with those closest followers of his. And he tells them. I have to go away so that I can prepare a place for you. And when I have prepared that place for you. I will come and take you to that place. And of all people. Good old Thomas says to Jesus. Where is this place you are going? And How do we know the way there? And Jesus looks at him and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So that's where our mind goes the most when it comes to the way. But that is not the last place that it is used within our New Testament. And you don't have to turn there. We're going to spend most of our time in Acts 13. But I'll tell you what's going on at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Because we see this word pop out again. And it pops out. Actually, it's interesting because the guy is talking about is the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians many years later. But his name wasn't Paul yet. His name was Saul. And he was still an enemy of the church. And he went to the chief priests in Jerusalem. And they gave him letters and gave him the authority to go to Damascus. And all these other towns around. And go to those synagogues. And gather up people. And bring them back to Jerusalem for prison and for trial. Now they didn't just call them people. They didn't even call them the church. They called them this. The people of the way. And it's capitalized, the way. So very early in the life of the church, it began to be known as the way. And you will see that stated again and again and again throughout the history book of the New Testament. The history book of the New Testament is the book of Acts. Acts. So I don't think it's any accident whatsoever that we see Paul use this word again, not in Acts 13, but in Acts chapter 12. Now I've got to set this up for you a little bit because this love chapter of the Bible is in a place that we might not expect it. Paul is in the middle of a deep discussion, a deep discussion one-sided right now because of earlier discussions and because of what he had heard about what's taking place in the church in Corinth and just let me tell you something the church in Corinth was mightily mixed up there were a lot of issues in this church amongst these people when I say church don't think about a building all right think about the people and there was a mighty mighty mix up there and it had a lot to do with pride and competition and those in the body of Christ trying to be better than others so, when we look at beginning with about 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter 10, into chapter 11, and then all the way through chapter 14, we see this discussion on spiritual gifts. We'll talk about that more of that here in just a little bit. And in the midst of this discussion about spiritual gifts, what we see is this talk about love. So, let's take a look at it. Open again to 1 Corinthians 13, but we're going to jump. A few verses ahead of that. The end of chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 29 of First Corinthians 12. And this is what it says. Paul writing. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? And I know that might be a little confusing you, what all that is getting at. We'll get into that here in just a moment. But then Paul says this He says, about these spiritual gifts, he says, verse 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then he makes this statement, and I will show you a still more excellent. What way? I will show you a more excellent way. And as a result, we get the love chapter. (laughs) I can't even say what i was saying. The love, is like the love boat. You may remember the love boat. I'm really dating myself there. Oh my goodness, that's like love boat, Fantasy Island. We're like talking, I gotta be careful. The kids will be like, you watched a show called Fantasy Island? It's not what you're thinking. This is back in the days, all right? The plane, the plane. Okay, anyway. Okay. So, um, but this is what we get. We get this love chapter. There's an interesting thing about this love chapter. Never, it, Paul never in this chapter attempts to offer like a dictionary definition of love. But instead, he gives the powerful characteristics of love and states in everyday language what love is and isn't and what love does and does not do and what we will find out today about love in this love study is this: more than anything else, love is intrusive. it invades my space that's what love does and you don 't believe me? There is nothing natural about real love, nothing and you 're like me, come on, okay, let me let, okay. There are a lot of babies being born right now. And I'm not talking about spiritual babies, but that's a wonderful thing. I love to see newborns in Christ, but I'm just talking about babies like like there's a lot of babies, not only in this area, but even in this church. There was another one born this week, all right? And that is a great thing. And it's, it's I, I want you to picture just for a moment, some of this will be easier than others because this is you, you're a mom, okay? And I want you to, to imagine holding, looking in the eyes of that little bundle of joy, that brand new little bundle of joy that you're holding in your hands. And you look at this little baby with love and adoration. And the baby looks back at you with none of that, None of it. I'm serious. This baby is looking back at you thinking in its wee little mind, what are you going to do for me at 2 o'clock in the morning? At 2.15 in the morning? At 2.45 in the morning? And then you roll around to 9.20 in the morning and that same little one looks at you and says, what have you done for me lately? That is natural. And love intrudes on all of that. What we see as we dive in first to 1 Corinthians 13. We see this. We see, and he puts it in pretty plain terms. The worthlessness of the loveless life. You got that? The worthlessness of the loveless life so let's dive into it this is where he begins in this discussion he says if I speak with the tongues of men and angels we talk about this just a little bit because in the early church when it came to spiritual tongues gifts of the spirit meaning in tongues there were two types The first one was exemplified on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit rained down upon that small group of men and they began for the first time ever preaching the gospel. The gospel is this, Jesus came, he died, he was buried and he rose again and through him through him, we can have eternal life. That's the gospel. Very first time it was ever preached was the day of Pentecost, about 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Now, what's taking place here is this is, a, this is a Jewish feast, a big one. Not as big as the Passover, but it is a big one. So you got people from that part of the world flocking into Jerusalem, people with different languages, people of different dialects, okay? And they're there in Jerusalem celebrating this feast, there's this noise that catches people's attention. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in place. There's this noise, takes place, it kind of gathers people around in somewhat of a crowd, if you will, and then they hear something pretty extraordinary. You have this group of men up there, kind of pointed different directions, because there's no sound systems back then, and they're preaching, but this is a thing that it wasn't just what they were saying, although that was quite powerful, it's... How they were saying it. Because you had people of all different languages and dialects. You got these men up here speaking it. And everybody was hearing it in their own language. And they're looking at these guys. (laughs) I don't know what it says about these poor 12 guys. But they look at them and they say. They're not smart enough for this. (laughs) You ever been there before? Somebody look at you and says. Where would that come from? Because you're not smart enough to say that. They look at these men, and it actually says that they see that they were uneducated men. And they're like, how are they up there speaking? It becomes clear they're speaking in their own language, but everybody else is hearing it in a multitude of languages. And it's like, how is this happening? It was happening by the power of spirit. It was speaking in tongues. I want to tell you something. It would be like me being in Russia, preaching in English, and the crowd hearing it in Russian without a translator. It still takes place in parts of our world today by the power of the Spirit. So that is one speaking in tongues. Now the other speaking in tongues, that's the tongues of men. You got another tongues here, the tongues of angels. And that is a big part of what's going on in Corinth. That's a big part of their issue. You see, Corinth was taking some of these more visible spiritual gifts and elevating them to a place where they were more important than others. And in doing so, they were stepping all over each other, figuratively. And this tongues of angels is this, it is not intelligible when somebody speaks it. You can't understand what is being said without someone to interpret it for them. So you you understand, the tongues of angels, and it was more of a prayer thing, more of a worship type of thing. And this is what Paul says about both of these. He says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now this would be something very understandable. See, Corinth was very much a pagan place. There were multiple pagan temples there where pagan gods were worshipped. And it was noisy. There were instruments that were used, that were loud. And he said, if I have no love, it's just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And then he goes on to this. Look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I know all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, if you jump ahead into chapter 14, which I'm not going to have you do right now, but you can do it later this week. You will find something out. The the spiritual gift that the Corinthians were all wrapped up in was the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. Okay, the worship type, prayerful type of tongues. They were very wrapped up in this, okay? And what Paul tells them, he says this, that one is right here, okay? The gift of prophecy is up here. And by prophecy, I'm not speaking about telling of the future. This is a spoken word of God. And he gives his reasoning for that in chapter 14. He says, someone can be up here in an unorganized way speaking with these tongues of angels and nobody can understand it. It doesn't doesn't do them good. But he said, the word of prophecy is understandable. People hear it and they respond. And he says, I would rather speak five words of prophecy than 10,000 words of tongues that people don't understand. So do you get what I'm getting here? Paul takes prophecy and he puts it up here. Preaching the word of God. But this is what he says about that prophecy. If if I know the mysteries of the gospel and the mysteries of God's word. And I have the ability to communicate those. If I go beyond that and I have faith. Now this isn't just a faith of like having trust in God. The faith he's talking about here. Look at it. He says and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. We're talking about miraculous type of faith here. Like, I have faith to a level that people get healed because of my faith. You understand what I'm saying? This is a miraculous type of faith. So he goes on to say, and if I have faith as to remove mountains, if I've got prophecy, if I've got crazy faith, but do not have love, I am nothing. And he continues on. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, give what of my possessions to feed the poor? 10%? 50%? 85%? No, all. If I give everything to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, there is not seen as any greater sacrifice for the Lord than giving a life For the Lord, giving my life for the Lord. These are the heights of what we would see as sacrificial, but he says this: But if I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Absolutely nothing. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? He says: Give up everything for the cause of Christ, everything. But don't have love at the center of it. And everything you will have done. Would be worthless. The litmus test for our lives. And our achievements. Is the absence or the presence of love. It is the more excellent way. And following this thankfully Paul gets practical I like practical and I like okay so if you're going to talk about this love that is so important that needs to be in my life what does it look like and what we see in the next few verses we lose a little bit I mean to us there's a reason it's read at wedding it's not just because it has some good advice there Um, it's kind of pretty I mean it's, it's put in a poetic way and I will tell you this some of that poetic nature of it that was written originally in the Greek is kind of lost in translation. In other words, in the Greek, it's even more poetic. It's even more beautiful. But there's more to it than just the beauty beauty of the word. So let's dig into it. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is patient. Um, Literally what it means is love is patient. Long-tempered, not short-tempered. Some people are a little better at this patience thing than others, but it's not natural for any of us, okay? And I think we can just leave it right there. Love is patient, followed by this. Love is kind. It's kind of interesting in the Greek the picture that's painted with the words about this kind. Love is love is both is is both mild, okay? I kind of understand that. And useful. And useful. There are certain people who will never find themselves in a position of customer service. Okay, and if they do, they will not last.? Okay? And they're usually not kind people. <laughs> kind is not just mild, it's useful. It's, it's because that, that type of love makes one useful. All right so we, we, we need to continue to move on. All right. Love is not jealous. Now here's the interesting thing. This one is interesting because this one affects us a little more than than others. Not always, but at its very core it affects us more than others. And I'll put it this way. What does it do to a person that I'm envious of? That I envy or I am jealous of them? Jealous of what they have or what they have accomplished. Does it do anything to them whatsoever? Now if you act upon that it might. But at its very core, no it does not. Who does the envy and the jealousy hurt? Hurts yourself, exactly right. It robs you from the potential or from the ability to be happy for people when they accomplish something or what they have. And it says this, love is not jealous. Continuing on. Love does not brag. And that simply means this, to put oneself forward before others. Okay? And the next one follows up with it quite well. Love does not brag, and love is not arrogant. You know what the the word picture painted in the Greek is for our word arrogant in the English language? It's this. Inflated. <laughs> inflated. I was given this piece of advice. Many years ago. I don't even remember who gave it to me. But it was good advice. And it was this. Anytime that you find yourself on the spot. You're in front of a group of people. Whether you're just telling a story. Or whether you are in a more formal setting. Kind of like this. Before you open your mouth. Deflate yourself. (laughs) Okay. And that is going to make your mode of communication work. Much, much better. Who wants to listen to anyone who is arrogant? Right. Love is not arrogant. Let's continue on. Verse five. Love does not act unbecomingly. Some of you got an NIV? uses a different word. You got anybody NIV? What's it use? Rude. You see that? Love is not rude. Um, because unbecomingly, I, I haven't used that too much in my regular, I mean, I, my wife or I, well... Yeah, I can't remember any time that you told me don't act unbecomingly. Have I said that to you ever? If I said that, girls, don't don't act unbecomingly to your sister. I said that. Have I said this? Don't be rude to your sister. Okay. All right. So, and, and what if you, if you get into the basis of what this is? This is an interesting one. It's this. the The word picture in the Greek is this: is to is to behave without honor. To behave without honor for oneself. Or for another. And continuing on. It says love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Guys how much is this the antithesis of what we see in our society today. And it's not just today. It's always been this way. I'm going to get what's mine. That's what I'm out there for. I'm going to work hard for it. But I'm going to get what is Mine. Love does not seek its own. And then it goes on to say this love is not provoked. Now, this is a very interesting picture painted by the Greek. It's this to be sharp. To be sharp. Why do you have knives that are sharp? So that they're ready to be used. Do do you you understand this provoked? I am ready to shred somebody. Whether it be with my words, whether it be with my actions, or these days, whether it be with my thumbs or my fingers, because I will shred them on Facebook. I can shred them. I'm a shredder, all right? Love is not provoked. And then, get this one. The end of verse 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. I want to speak to us husbands and you wives here just for a second. Because husbands, we'll place this one on our wives sometimes and we're just as guilty of it. We absolutely are. You ever been, you ever been here this for? On either side of this equation? You remember back three years ago? Seven months? Fifteen days? hours 32 minutes and 50 seconds and you said this to me <laughs> you remember that you remember that because i remember that i remember it and i'm doing this to you now i've been i've been holding that one in the back pocket for three years boy and i'm gonna lay it on the table right now you remember that but love what is love love does not take into account a wrong suffered literally it means this reckon as evil what this means is this Will there be a reckoning for wrongs committed? Yes, but that's not our responsibility to take care of. That's God's. God is the one who will bring the reckoning. He will do a much better job of it than we ever could. That's his place. That's his power. That's his position. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Let's continue on. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. This is kind of a summation here. This is just Paul, I think, saying, just in case I forgot anything, all right? Love does not rejoice in what is evil, it rejoices in what is true. And what he does here is he restates, again, the opposition between what is wrong and evil and what is true, because, brothers and sisters, what we see that is true in this world behind it has God's truth. God is the one who stands behind, squarely behind all truth that is found in our world. So let's continue on. Boy, it really really gets good. It says this, verse seven, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things all things you know what people have taken this they've kind of ripped this verse out of this passage for a number of years now saying that man this sounds kind of gullible to me all right I mean seriously you really somebody who really seriously believes all things hopes all things endures all things isn't that putting you in a place where you could be taken advantage of I mean seriously But if we look very closely at verses 4 through 7, what we will realize if the Spirit wakes us up to it is this. This description of love is a perfect description of the love of God. And I don't think I would call him gullible, okay? And then he wraps it all up, the beginning of verse 8, with this. Love never Fails. What it means in the Greek is this, love never falls down. And what we'll see as we wrap up this study on love is this, love will endure. Love will always endure. Look at the rest of verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, what I already tell you about prophecy Paul puts that one up here when it comes to spiritual gifts, all right? If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. They're going to go away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. See, this is what's going on, guys, in Corinth. And the reason that this was written, and I'm so glad it was, because this is an incredible passage of Scripture. But in Corinth, there was, there was strife, there was competition between people. People taking things that were important but not as important as as love and elevating them too high. He's just saying, you can do these things. These things aren't bad. They are good. But you need to have love in the middle of them. Love needs to be the motivation. So I already told you, Paul took prophecy, the spoken word of God, and he held it up here. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul writing in Romans chapter 10. But if love isn't in the middle of it, continue on, verse 11. Paul goes on to explain. This incompletion, he says this, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to think like a child and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I have been known in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. The point is that he's getting at is this, there is a day coming when we will be made whole in Christ. Now, do not misunderstand me. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul makes this statement. We are a new creation in Christ. Christ makes us new. But the work is not complete until Jesus will complete it one day. When we're in his presence. And when that day comes, when the day comes when we meet Jesus face to face, and we will, every one of us in this room will meet Jesus Christ face to face. And when that day comes, you know the only thing that's gonna matter? As a follower of his, How we loved. How we have loved. I want you to think for just a moment, brothers and sisters, of the days when you have loved best. And I'll give you a little bit of a description of that. The days that we love best are the days that we do what we don't want to do for someone that we love. I mean, if we're just doing what we want to do and they they want it done too, then big deal. Anybody can do that. It's the days that I don't want to do this. I might even love this person that I should be doing this for. I don't want to do it. On some days, I might not even like the person that I probably should be doing this for. I mean, what did Jesus say? Love your enemies? Something like that. On those days, those are the days I'm talking about, and the days when we do it, when we actually, okay, I don't want to do this, I know I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it because I love him, because I love her, because I love them. I'm going to do it. On those days, folks, when we have treated others the very best because of our love for them, those are just a, those days are just a shadow of what's to come. When in glory we will do it all without even having the mental contemplation first of, I don't want to do this. We won't even think about it. We'll just act in love in the presence of God. Love endures Forever. See verse 13. Verse 13, you're talking about the trifecta, okay? You're talking about the heights here, all right? We're talking about the triple team. I mean, we're talking about the gold, the silver, and the bronze. Now, faith, hope, and love abide these three. They will remain. But the greatest of these is love. Love endures forever. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, love is the way forward. Love is not just the way forward. It is the only way forward for the follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus exemplified it. Now, the first one of these, I think you'll probably know quite well. You don't even need to turn there. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. The, the, the world. You, you catch that? The world doesn't love him back. You understand that? The world of which we were a part of. Those who are following Jesus now, we were a part of that world. We did not love him. I mean, John makes it really, really clear in others of his writings that God loved us first before we loved him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life yeah we know it what about the other one not John 316 1 John 316 why don't you turn to that one it's going to be very near the end okay guys very near the end like that's just pages from the concordance all right 1 John 3.16, just as important, maybe not quite as well known as his counterpart in the Gospel of John. Let's look at it and a few to follow it. 1 John 3.16, we know love. We recognize, we know love by this, that he, Jesus lay down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay, and you're like, okay, okay, I I see what you're saying here. I see what you're saying, preacher. So what what we're saying, what, what John is writing here is that if the opportunity comes before me to lay down my life in the place of a brother or sister in Christ, I need to do that. Okay, yes, I don't know how often those opportunities are going to come. I call it an opportunity. I'm not sure we would call it an opportunity at the moment. But if that time comes, yes. We are to lay down our life for our brother or our sister. But it's interesting to me. That what follows First John three sixteen doesn't talk about dying; it talks about living. Look at verse seventeen. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. I want to speak just for a moment to the veterans in here. And I'm not talking about the veterans in the military. Appreciate you. Very much so, but but you're not the veterans I'm speaking to here just for a moment. Talking about the veterans of matrimony. Okay? The veterans of matrimony. We got some of you in here who've been married for a little while. Got some of you who've been here married for a long time. Some of you have been married for midland, you know, somewhere in there. It doesn't take too long in marriage to figure something out. If the words, I love you, are not backed up by action and behavior, they don't have much value anymore. John says, don't just love in words. We love in what we do and truth. Truth is this, our love points others to God.